Well, it was around 70 years ago that uh, God moved powerfully among the people of Lewis, one of the Scottish islands. And it was said that unbelievers had come to, their, come to faith in their hundreds, and many of the believers who were already connected with churches there became convicted of their own worldliness. And a community was so changed that I guess the aftershocks of that are still being felt today. Now, much is made of the preaching of a minister called Duncan Campbell, but there's no doubt that the quiet background intercession of two housebound women in their 80s was really instrumental in what became known as an awakening or a revival. Peggy and Christine Smith, at 82 and 84 years of age, were deeply troubled by two particular things, the state of their community and the state of the church in the land. They sensed God's divine displeasure towards both. They sensed this and that their community, in the community, people were lost, sins were mounting up, and people were looking for hope in all the wrong places. The church itself was sluggish, really, distracted by the comforts of the world, away from those inviolable priorities of godliness and gospel proclamation, the things that churches are meant to be all about. So what did these women do? They prayed. They prayed. They interceded on behalf of the people, and they asked God to intervene. Not just once. Uh, This was a daily prayer, and not just part of a list to rhyme off at the start of the morning and get on with the day. No, this was persistent It was heartfelt. I'm sure it hurt their knees. It was that kind of prayer. Now, they did the best thing that any Christian prayer or intercessor can actually do. They just took God's word and turn it into prayer. That's the key, you know, for all of us who struggle to do that. Now, many passages were prayed, but two were reported to be visited again and again and again. One was Isaiah 44, verse 3, which says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. The second was Isaiah 64 in the passage that we're going to read shortly. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Now, wonderfully, for those of you who know what happened back in Lewis in that time, God truly did he answered their prayers. First, these women had called, uh, had seen God answer their prayers in the elders of the church that they belonged to. They called the elders round. They explained to them their concern. They insisted that the elders start to join them in their prayer times, and they did, and they were shaken. Then they sent for a pastor to hold some meetings, and Duncan Campbell was that man. And here's what happened when he arrived. He had barely stepped off the boat when the elders met him. He was just looking forward to some supper and a good night's sleep. But the elders said, the people are waiting. And it was nine o'clock at night. Now, not much is reported to have actually happened in the meeting. Uh, He preached a regular sermon on God's words. And people prayed, even as we would do regularly here. But just as he got up to leave... 
one of the local blacksmiths came in, burst through the doors, and shouted, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, we were praying that God would pour himself out like water on dry ground, and guess what? He's done it. He's done it. Campbell said, when I went to the door of the church, I saw 600 people outside. It was 11 o'clock at night. They had left what they were doing and felt compelled to come. And one young lady in the crowds broke the silence of the throng that stood there with the question, Sir, is there mercy for me? She asked. Now, many came to faith that night and over the coming months. It was a revival, truly. It was clearly a work of God's Spirit, but there's no doubt about it. He uses and employs in His sovereign purposes Christians like us who pray, who take God's Word and what He's said about Himself and the promises of what He's going to do in the future and turn it back to Him and say, remember what you said? Look at what's happened in the past. What's it going to be like today? What are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? And to pray. People, he uses people who boldly ask God to intervene in situations that are of deep and heartfelt concern. Now, that's what we find Isaiah doing in chapter 63 and 64. Isaiah was deeply troubled about all that God had revealed to him about the state of his own nation, Israel, and its religion. Exile was coming. It was a tangible expression of God's displeasure against God's Old Testament people. But all was not lost. Hope was held out. Isaiah hears God make many promises for the future but with a heart moved with present pity and present desperation as well, he cries out in prayer, why not now? Why not today? And this is why I've chosen this passage for the start of this week of prayer and for the start of this new year. Because it, it models how we should pray at a time like this. It models how we should pray about our city, and about our nation in times like these, not even thinking about COVID, but just thinking about the godlessness of it. Though that said, COVID has certainly served to expose a nation's idolatry, health and wealth are threatened. Have you heard people talk even in a shaded way about their despair? Have you heard the worry and the anxiety, whether that's expressed in verbal concerns or hope about the effectiveness of a vaccine or how things will just get back to normal. I've seen so many pictures this past week on Facebook. I generally try to avoid it, but with lots of little fingers crossed with 2021 next to it, oh, this year will be better. Just because it's the change of a year doesn't mean that it's going to be any better. It's just another day. It's just another year. Do not put your hope in a calendar. Put your hope in Christ. He's the only one who can change things. Things can change when we feel deeply about a people's hopelessness or a church's, including my own, lethargy, 
godlessness, passivity, laziness. There's stuff that needs to change in us. That's for sure. And that's why this prayer is also helpful for those of us who are Christians for, to inform how we can pray as a church family for us and for churches across Scotland. Things change when we take God's word and turn it into a prayer. Oh, Liam, hurry up and read it, you're saying. That's what we're going to do now. Be patient. So Isaiah 63, reading from verse 7 to the end of 64. This is what God's word says. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised. According to all the Lord has done for us, Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. So he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us, but you are our Father. Through, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance, for a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, uh, you are angry. How then can we be saved? 
All of us have become like one who is unclean. All and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and, given, and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire. And all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Amen. This is God's word. Right, let me give you two words as headings to the two main sections of what we've just looked at. Uh, this is the key to using it, I guess, in this week of prayer and beyond. The first is remember. The second is request. Remember, look back, request, ask God for things is essentially what we're looking at this morning. So first of all, remember, God has poured out his grace on us before. That's what Isaiah is reflecting on. From verse 7 and for the verses following in chapter 63, Isaiah is reflecting on the nature of God. And two things in particular, when you boil it all down, he's looking at God's deeds and God's heart. Okay? And what Isaiah says when he puts all that together is to say God's heart has been put on display for God's people, even God's sinful and rebellious people, God's heart is on display in his deeds, in what he has done. And that's why Isaiah starts with such praise. You know, I will tell of the kindnesses, plural, the deeds, all the Lord has done, the many good things he has done. And of course, what does Isaiah attribute this activity of God to? Is it their deservedness? They were like, yes, we're just getting what, we, what we've earned. No, it's purely down to God's grace. Now, Isaiah could have recalled hundreds and hundreds of examples of this throughout, from the point where he's writing in history as he looks back throughout the history of the people of God, but he zeroes in on one, the Exodus. The story of Moses as a mediator leading as God's ambassador the people of God out of slavery and oppression in Egypt and, and into freedom of the people of God and worship of God alone. And he, and Isaiah, and Exodus, of course, is the biggie in the eyes of God's Old Testament people, proof beyond doubt that God loves us and acts on behalf of his people. And what do they reflect on? They reflect on the fact that God proved his love by becoming their savior. And certainly they needed saving the book of Exodus starts with wailing mums and whiplashed men. It's a terrible scene. Sons are being thrown into the Nile. Men are working until they drop dead. 
Pharaoh looks in the vast crowd of people that are there, and he's like, my people. And God says, I hear their cries, and to you, Pharaoh, no, they are my people. My children. My firstborn son. And so even in the midst of that, as Isaiah starts to recall God's redemption as his saving deeds, he's actually recalling God's heart, that he's a father moved by love. Now, dads are meant to love their kids. Many fail at this in different ways. Not our Heavenly Father, and not one bit. He cares deeply for his children in every respect. When you look with me at verse 9, you see, in their distress, he too was distressed. His heart feels deeply what his people, his children, are going through. In Hebrew, Hebrew, it says he was moved to his bowels. That has different connotations for us nowadays. But back then, it basically meant that in the deepest part of his being, he felt compassion for them. So what did he do? He rescued them. And for him, it was easy as a dad scooping his son out of danger to carry him through it. Verse 9b, he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Now, I wonder, even as you reflect on God's heart and God's deeds, is this how you view him? You know, some people have a very skewed view of who God is. Maybe it's made up from a patchwork of different Bible passages, or actually just from your previous preconceptions of things that you've heard before. Does the Bible fully inform your picture of who God is? It's a really important thing to think through, or else you'll have a caricatured picture of God. And caricatures are ugly. We need to see him for who he is. And as we do that in this passage, we remember that his saving love, remembering his saving love, and remembering his fatherly heart is actually fundamental to how we pray. If we don't approach God like a father, ready to lovingly give his kids great gifts, and lovingly wise to know when to not give them the things that they do ask for that would definitely be bad for them, then what are we going to do? We can come and ask him with boldness. Like a child asking their father for something. When we know his love and his father heart and the fact that he is powerful to do these kindnesses, these deeds, It fuels our prayers. Now, Isaiah says, remember, God has proved his love by becoming our savior and our redeemer, reflecting on the Exodus. But he also, in this section, in chapter 63, remembers a different expression of God's love. Another aspect of fatherly care, really, and it's called discipline. God proved his love by disciplining them, as verse 10 reflects on. Now, disobedience is dangerous to children, right? It's disobedient to God's children. I mean, if one of my kids is racing towards a busy road and I shout, stop, obedience is very important at that point. Verse 10 tells us that God's children rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. But God proved his love. He didn't say, do you know what? Just you do what you want. I'm going to have nothing to do with you anymore. No, he did that hard but necessary thing to show them the nature of his holiness and his loving commitment to them. He disciplined them. 
He disciplined them even through their enemies at times. And we know that God still does that today. This is not uh, something that's just for the Old Testament people of God. It's for us. As Hebrews 12, uh, quoting Proverbs 3, actually, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as a son, as a daughter, as a child. And perhaps recognizing this aspect of God's character helps us reflect on the ways in which he may be disciplining us in these times. How has he been doing that? Again, maybe through this COVID-19 crisis. I mean, there is enough in God's words from Jesus' words in Mark 13 to those um, truths of Paul in Romans 1 concerning the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all wickedness and unrighteousness to say that in some way God uses major events to in a sense, give a taste of his discipline, a mini judgment of a future judgment to come. That's what we've been thinking about in our Revelation series. There are tons of these things that happen all the time, as if to take God's people and even the people of the world who do not yet know him and to give them a shake from their slumber, as if to say, it's time to wake up. Well, maybe God's been doing that and disciplining us. Maybe he's using these times to expose to us a a misdirected love within the people of God for worldly things. I mean, if our despair looks just like the despair of people in the world, then what hope have we really got? Do we have it? Or is it just a mental ascent, a token idea, but that's not actually real to us? This is a challenge for us in these days. Or maybe it exposes a half-hearted love for heavenly things. We're just not that excited about God's and eternal glory. Well, no matter what God uses, whether it's loving deeds of rescue and redemption or loving acts of discipline, it's designed to bring people to know him, even to their senses, to be wise And that's the effect that it actually had on God's people. Did you notice as I read through that how many times it went from, oh, praise God, he's done this amazing thing, but his people were really bad. And praise God, he rescued them, and then it just got really bad again. It's like a roller coaster of emotion, that reading, isn't it? Because that's what the Christian life is like. (laughs) We come to these regular points where we recognize our own insufficiency And realize that we have been living a little lie of thinking that we are actually sufficient to get through this life on our own. We're a little bit more independent than we like to think. Well, we're not, though. We are completely dependent on God's. Verse 11 says, his people recalled the days of old and suddenly realized, oh, we've wandered from God. The great shepherd of the people, and we've missed his, they've missed his presence among them. That's verse 11. They've not seen him work powerfully as recently as they had seen in the past. That's verse 12. You know, they're not like this free Roman horse in open country that he uses as an illustration in here. They're like shackled and browbeaten. This is how God brought them at times to their senses. And that's how kind God is. That's the kind of grace 
and mercy that actually brings God himself everlasting renown through loving deeds, through loving discipline. As Isaiah looked at both, it led him to pray. Now, how does this apply to us in New Testament times? Well, it's really simple, really, because just as the Exodus was the biggie for God's Old Testament people as a symbol of God's loving deeds and rescue, well, we have a greater place to look, don't we? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent in love to be the Savior of the world. We remember John 3.16, but we often forget John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And again, we as Christians are refreshed and led to pray because we're grateful for his wonderful salvation. It resets us, and we lift our voices in prayer. The cross is the ultimate display of God's fatherly love and kindness. And if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've considered this. Those who are children of God can look to the cross of Christ and be in no doubt of the depth of his feeling towards us. Isn't that precious? To remember that he died for us, as Romans 5 says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? He feels deeply for us. What did that produce? Activity, movement towards us in the person of his son. And what did Christ's coming achieve? Salvation, your eternal glory. And en route, your Christ-shaping form developing. Godliness becoming like him, little by little, bit by bit. And sometimes it takes discipline for us to see that again, but we can see it in his word and turn back to him in prayer. Tons of people did in Lewis back then. Tons of people need to do that today. If you're watching this and you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the biggest and the best thing that you could ever reflect on, please do ask someone about this. Get in touch with us here at the church. We'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. Find out more. This is worth looking into. The Bible says that we're sinners, that God in his goodness and mercy and his goodness and justice will judge us for our sin we cannot save ourselves. We need someone from outside of us to save us, and that is Jesus Christ. He came, he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended, he reigns with God on high, and will one day come back. And only those who have put their faith and trust in him by turning from sin and putting their faith and belief in him will be saved. Have you? Do that today. Pray to him today. He's listening. Well, remembering what God, out of the kindness of his love, has done in the past, that's the starting point for all our praying. Look back to the cross, brothers and sisters, as we pray this week. Look back for the, the salvation that we have. Look back to all the many kindnesses that he has shown us by the deeds he's given us. 
by the deeds he's performed for us. For all the ways he's disciplined us. And that remembering, that looking back is a stepping stone to what we see next in this prayer, longing. A heartfelt longing for him to do it again, to move in power, not just in you, but in everyone around you. And that's what makes us pray as Isaiah did, secondly, and make his request. Request. Plead with God to do these things again. Isaiah asked God to do three things, essentially, in chapter, from verse 15 through to the end of chapter 14, uh, sorry, in verse 15 through to the end of chapter 64. Look down, come down, and act. First of all, look down. You see this in 63, verses 15 to 19. It's essentially a call to look at the state of us. We're your people. We're meant to live in the land you're promised, but we've not called you. People not called, you've not called, are, are living in our place. And we, your kids, are in trouble. Now, Isaiah isn't shaking his fist at God here. He's not angry with him, as I've already explained. He's just passionately expressing what's wrong about what he sees in God's people and in the nation to God. God already knows these things. God completely agrees with these things. Isaiah says things aren't right, and God says, absolutely. But it's the depth of that feeling. It's even remembering and rehearsing those things back to God that makes prayer so heartfelt. It makes him pray, things aren't right, and it leads him to say, to ask the right question. Where are your zeal and might? Verse 15. This is a kind of situation, in other words, where as we look back, we've seen you intervene in times like this before. Won't you do it again? Or verse 17. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we don't revere you? What an honest prayer that is. Isaiah knows why God has explained throughout this book that he's chosen to express his love and discipline for a time. That's what this thing called exile will be. And God cannot be criticized for being unloving. Not when you read earlier in Isaiah where it says, all day long I have held out my hands. All day long. Isaiah knows this, but still he pleads. And that's what's remarkable about this prayer. Again, what do we see? Isaiah reminds God of who he is. You're our father, verse 16. You're our redeemer, verse 17. Again, not that God is forgotten, but it pleases him to hear his children rehearse these things back to him. Then he says, come down. Now listen to the longing in this, verse 1. Anytime you read the word, oh, it's basically an expression of the heart. The heart is moving first before the words actually get to the mouth. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down. Oh, that you would come down, Isaiah prays. Come down and do something about this trouble that we're in right now. Just like you did at Sinai, when the mountain of Sinai was your pulpit and you yourself preached to the people. Oh, that you would come down in noticeable ways, as noticeable as a fire on twigs or heat on water. Simple illustrations, powerful points. 
Oh, that you would come down, verse 3, and do the unexpected things. Like when you parted the, the Red Sea, that was unexpected. Don't hold yourself back. You're mighty in power. Tear open the heavens violently. That's what rend means. Rend isn't like parting a curtain. Rend is like rip it apart and come down. Just come down. We need you, is Isaiah's prayer. And the third aspect of it, act on our behalf. Verse 4 and 5, where Isaiah underlines the fact there is no one like God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him, who comes to the help of those who do right and remember his ways. Yes, the prayer of the righteous person truly is powerfully and effective, said James. And even, that righteous, even if that righteousness is not our own, it's still a gift from God. It's still powerful. And in verses 6 and 7, he acknowledges that's not what we are. God's deeds are right and pure, but our deeds aren't. As Isaiah reflects on the people of God back then, their deeds aren't. They, he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. In other words, not even worthy to come and worship. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even our best attempts to be clean are just dirty. The good things we do are stained with sin. The good effort we put in doesn't last. Our sins, like the wind, take control of us and move us in directions we never thought we'd go. And verse 7, to top it off, no one prays. How hopeless. It sounds a bit like our lives, doesn't it? It's really honest. It sounds a bit like an expression of 2020 for me, maybe for you. That's why, even as we reflect on our own neediness, our own sinfulness, we pray along with Isaiah move, lords. We know you're mighty. We know you're powerful. Act, Lord. Rend the heavens. Come down. Act on our behalf. We know that you have the power to remake us, like verse 8 says, as a potter with clay taking wilting, floppy forms like us and reshaping them for his glory, making us into the people we were made to be. Verse 9, do not remember our sins, Forever he knows, and we know where our problem lies. And verse 12, will you? After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure for them with exile? For us, discipline in its many forms? Well, Isaiah already knew the answer, for he'd already declared it on God's behalf. Of course, God would not hold himself back. Despite the undeservedness of his people or the ungodliness of the nation, God would not keep silent. God did come down. God came down in the person of Jesus Christ and preached good news having said, will you hold yourself back, Lord? Will you keep silent? No, he came down and he opened his mouth. 
The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. Repent and believe the good news. He came personally in Jesus, the eternal son. That's what we've just celebrated at Christmas. It's just what we've sung about in all our carols. He came and preached good news, salvation for all who'd come to him. He came to save, to make perfect forever. People like us who didn't deserve it. That's what we reflected on at the start of our service. And he came down to reshape us like the clay into his likeness. All to show what? That actually God answered Isaiah's prayer. Wonderfully. So brothers and sisters, we see how relevant, I hope, in some way, this prayer is to our present day situation. It's a very realistic delve into the reality of what the Christian life is actually like. But it also reminds us again and again to remember and look back. And on the basis of who God is, his heart, his deeds, and what he said he will do, what he can do to make those requests. To say, to encourage us to say to him in prayer today, this week, all year, until he comes back, Lord, do it again. For the sake of those around us who do not know you, please do it again. For the sake of our witness, please do it again. Come down, look down, come down, act on our behalf for your glory and your renown. Remember, God has poured out his grace before and then request, plead with him to do it again. Let's bow our heads and let's take a few moments in prayer before we come to sing and to share in communion after that. Let's take a few moments in quiet prayer and then I'll lead us. Our Father, please help us to remember again and again the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, your saving work in this world and your saving work in our own lives. Help us to see, given the great things that you have done in the past and in our own lives and the lives of those we share fellowship with in this church family, on the basis of those recollections to make our requests before you, and in keeping with your words and your instruction, ask you for great things. Knowing that as 1 John 5 says, if we ask anything in accordance with your will, we know we have what we ask of you. How kind you are to hear our prayers. How great you are and kind you are to answer them. In Jesus' name, amen.